You're listening to Shooting the Bull with Vital Farms. Welcome everyone to episode four of Shooting the Bull with Vital Farms. Shep, we have an exciting guest today, do we not? An exciting guest. Probably when we first started this, we, when we thought of guests, this was immediately who came to both of our minds. Would you like to introduce the man, the myth, the legend himself? The man, the myth, the legend, the founder of Vital Farms, Renaissance man, pilot, boat captain, Eggman, Matthew O'Hare. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, welcome <laughs> to the, the garage. I love your, your digs. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be honest, Matt, we're a little bit intimidated because you've been on plenty of podcasts, right? No. No? I don't think I've so. I've listened to like three. I researched before and I saw three that you were already on. And that's more than we've done in total. They might have been called interviews back then, <laughs> not podcasts. Yeah, I think I've probably been on a few uh, over the years, but not a whole lot. Um, we touched on it a little bit, you know, when you mentioned your pilot's license, uh, being an entrepreneur. We'll get into the Vital Farm stuff, and we're so curious to your motivations and ambitions as you started that business. But you made a, you had a lot of businesses before Vital Farms. Tell us, how'd you get to Vital Farms? What, what did that journey look like leading up to starting Vital Farms? I love starting businesses. I'm an entrepreneur. If that, if you have to describe what, uh, you know, what my core is as a person, what I really live for, I just love starting and building businesses. And it's just a joy for me. And I've said this before, but it's like an art form, I think. I look at starting a business as no different than painting a picture. Same kind of thing. I'm, that's a, it's an art form. And uh, the canvas we use is, is the concept of the business. And then we start to work on it with whatever the, that business idea we have, just like an artist comes up with an idea. And then along the way, it really can fall apart and just go to crap, you know, and you can take the canvas and do what they did in the old days, paint it white and keep adding up, adding to it to get it right. <laughs> or sometimes it just goes great. Sometimes people think it's worth something and they'll actually buy it. You know, I've had all of that happen. I've had a lot of, you know, enough failures in my life and I've had a, a, a certain number of success in my life. You know, some have taken me a lot longer to get to where I want to be with it and some happen really quick. So Vital Farms is one of those ideas, you know, that was just sat there and brewed. And my, my poor wife has been the victim of me. You know, she lived with me side by side in a, in a, in a boat for five years and lived it. We, we drove it around to, took two years and drove to 44 states in an RV and lived in it full time. <laughs> and I would just keep popping these ideas and she would just groan. Like, what about this? How about that? You're like, and, she's like, another one today? You just had yeah. one yesterday. Yeah. And I counted recently. I think I started 42 companies, you know, wow. one size or another in my life. And um, what? Uh, and I've got six, seven right now that are going, you know. And that's just a fraction of the ideas you probably have. Oh, the ideas are, for. you know, there's thousands. Of them. And a lot of, I mean, you know, an idea without execution is meaningless. You know, it's, it's just an idea. But my wife now points out every once in a while we hear this business that's really wild. So that's what I said. You described that business exactly 10 years ago like, <laughs> you know being able to come up with an idea and executing them are two different things and so so just like a person can have an idea for a great piece of art and not be able to do it so being able to do both really matters i think and and vital farms was one of those that um the idea was always out there because i thought the need was out there no one was doing um, eggs from humanely raised chickens and it wasn't just the humane part but they actually taste better and when i discovered that with my first farm i, I spent the next 20 years stopping at roadside stands and, you know, buying free range in the stores and never getting what I wanted. Even, even when the farms, small farms, when I'd stop a lot of times, they were pale yellow yolks. And I, when they went out to see where their chickens were, they were in a glorified cage, half the size mm -hmm. of this garage living in dirt mm -hmm. and getting fed Purina lay ration. Um, so it was always the same, but every once in a while I find a farm and I don't know if you guys are old enough, ever watched an old 
versions of Lassie. But oh, the, yeah. whenever they drove into their, they, they, they lived on a small farm. Whenever anybody drove into their driveway, the chickens went scattering. It was always like, like there was always dozens, tons <laughs> of chickens running around. And a lot of the farms, you know, that if you grew up in a farm and you had chickens, just a small flock for yourself, but there were pets, they they forage around. And those eggs were always had the beautiful yolks, and mm-hmm. they taste delicious. And it's a different creature. And no one was scaling that, and so. So I don't think a lot of people know this. You didn't just go and start a farm to start a farm. You had this grand idea from the beginning. Well, yeah, the idea was I had been in the I had been in the franchising business before, and um, and so I thought if you could do this the way we did it at my farm, but on a larger scale, and then perfect the system, then you could write write a manual for how to do this properly. And then mm. you would turn this into what I call the upside down franchise, which would be instead of the stores being franchised like McDonald's has, it's the supply chain that would be franchised. It, and I use the word franchise in air quotes because this is not a legal franchise like a franchise. We don't sell them anything, but we, we have a model. And if you want to grow mm-hmm. for us, you have to meet certain criteria to do that. Your farm has to be a certain type. You have to be, if we want to, we want to know you as a person. We want to know that, that the farm is, has the structure to support the chickens, that you will build a, 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 a barn that will give them a great place to be at night, and that you'll follow our, our requirements for outside access. And we put this all into a big bundle um, and, and uh, created that, that aspect of it. But yes, I, the idea was to have a, a group of farms all over the United States in, in the warmer climates where the birds could be outdoors year-round and to, to collect those eggs pay a premium to those farmers, uh, package those eggs uh, under, under a single brand, and to sell them in stores around the world, around the country. Our 200-plus family farms have very few employees because they're almost all families that are, that are operating these. And so, spoiler alert, you jumped to the end of the movie. It worked. You were able to scale it. But how did you start it, right? You and, you and your wife, Catherine, started it just down the road from where we're at at Onion Creek. But how do you convince her to jump in to do a farm? And what are the first steps of that? She um, encouraged me to do it. Okay. Uh, and I think it was more, that was really what it was about. Um, Catherine wasn't that involved in the farming side of it. Um, she was really the cheerleader for getting me out there. And, and she was operating another business of mine at the time as well. Um, or that we, st- I shouldn't say a business of mine, but that we started together. And, um, and then she's gone on to become a yoga t- instructor and now a meditation teacher, which I heard you talked about in the last. So if you're looking to meditate. Do you know, I'll, I'll make my pitch right now. Matt, my <laughs> dream idea is to get Catherine on a farm doing yoga and meditation with the chickens on pasture. <laughs> I don't know that's, that she'd think that that was, I don't know, it'd be interesting. Uh, we'll have to ask that's her about a no, that. It's like, but that's it's okay. like Peloton meets Vital Farms, you know? <laughs> I pitched this to our grower support manager, the same guy who actually went down gigging frogs by the creek in his side-by-side last <laughs> weekend, and he laughed for a very long time, so... Yeah, you know the sound that I hear when you know when you start the podcast and at the end of the chickens cooing. That sound uh, when you have you know we started with mobile barns that we moved around the pasture. They they were basically converted cotton trailers that turn, they would each house about five hundred chickens at night. And so we had in this little farm here, I think we had eight of them. And we'd roll, we'd have to pull them around with a tractor every week or so to to and we'd move the, the chickens onto new pasture as opposed to rotate them how we do in our barns today and when I'd go in there to collect eggs in the morning the cooing was so loud and I would be on the phone 
talking, <laughs> talking to a restaurant that I was trying to get to buy our eggs. And they said, are those chickens? And because they were just loud, they they make such beautiful sound when they're happy, in the, especially yeah. in the morning, and when they're when they're laying, and uh, uh, they're just a, it, it's amazing. I love that sound. Mm-hmm. And when I when we first did the the traceability, uh, when you first launched that, Becca, I can't remember which farm. I think I sent you a text on on the farm, whatever it one it was. It had not just chickens, but it had horses and cows in the background. And you could hear the ninning every once in a while, and then cows in the background and the chickens. And I left that on my on my computer all day. <laughs> yeah, when I tally up the metrics to share with everyone, I have to factor out that Matt's watching our videos for four hours a day. And I don't want that to outsize the results. What's I don't favorite? watch them. I listen to them in the background. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That might be the brainchild for the pasture meditation that we just put out there. So you started with mobile barns. You're calling restaurants to buy the eggs. How do you start to gain traction on this business where Catherine's happy, you're outside of the house, your ideas, you're telling the chickens, you're not telling her anymore, you're, you're growing this business. How'd you start to get traction on this thing? Well, you call the restaurant and you go, this is how the calls would go, something like, um, hello, can I speak to the executive chef? <laughs> oh, this is the executive chef? Hi, I'm Matt O'Hare with Vital Farms. We do pasture-raised eggs. No, not pasteurized, pasture-raised. <laughs> Yes, I know who Louis Pasteur is. He's invented pasteurization. This is not the same thing. Yes, I heard of Madame Curie as well. She invented X-rays, but and they're both French, right? Yes. Uh, let's step back to eggs. Um, do you are you serving breakfast, and would you be interested in trying your eggs? You're a vegan restaurant, okay? Thanks very much. Click next phone call. And it was a nonstop process, and we, you know, no one was selling eggs for three dollars and ninety-three cents a dozen, which is what I was, our first price point was forty-nine dollars a case, and uh, it was a huge challenge. The the very beginning, when we first started getting huge volumes, you know, we bought a bunch of refrigerators on Craigslist and lined them up outside and just plugged them all in because we had a place to put them. So we get these eggs and we wash them by hand and we pack them on flats to begin with because they were just selling to restaurants. And we'd try to find places to put them in these refrigerators, and then we'd, you know, stack them up, and then I'd back the truck up after all that. You know, this is after getting the chicks and raising them up and, yeah. you know, feeding the chickens till they're 16 weeks old, and they start laying around 20 weeks, and you start getting the eggs, and, and then take them all to the food bank because we didn't have any customers for them. And that's what it was like at the beginning. And then you get one customer, and you got a second customer, and a third customer, and, and driving around to the Subaru and delivering the eggs. and. That's one of the biggest challenges in the egg industry too that I don't think a lot of people realize is the flock timing. So a flock starts laying at a certain time, but that doesn't mean you necessarily had customers to begin with. Oh yeah, Getting that right is a delicate science. And and, and it was funny to hear some of the early uh, grocery distributors that we've dealt with. You know, I I had never dealt with them before, but they don't like to be shorted. And so we'd be going along and selling everything we had and everything was going well. And all of a sudden we just get this spike. 40% 40% increase in the orders. And I don't have 40% more. <laughs> and, and, and the buyers would come to me and say, well, what's going on? You know what? what? I said, well, you know, I, I went out, I gathered all the hens together. I put on my George Patton, you know, general outfit and <laughs> strutted back and forth and gave them a, a rally speech. And the next day I got the same number of eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about, so you've kind of hinted at it, how you started out as the farmer. You're turning into the salesman. You are now the executive 
chairman of the Vital Farms board, but what are all the other phases in between along the way? And that became your main role in the Vital Farms company. Well, when you start as a company of one or two, you end up doing 100% of the job. So I was the, um, I was the first CFO, CMO, CEO, <laughs> COO. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, you know, over time you bring in other people and if you're doing your job right, I think as a, as a conscious business person, then you're always trying to hire people that are smarter and better at what they do than you are. So that when you're sitting in a room with those people, you're not the smartest person in the room. And I think that's, that's one of the keys of being, to doing it right in my view. Anyway, I like to have a working knowledge of what's going on. I also found that, it, that it's important to really have that working knowledge. Earlier companies, I'd kind of ignored the accounting function and think, well, that's a boring job. But I learned that you really have to understand the nuts and bolts of you know, profit and loss and, and balance sheets and all general ledger and everything that goes into you know, building a, a P&L. Uh, I wore every hat in the company at one form or another. I mean, I, I was the delivery person. I delivered all 100% of the eggs to start with, and then you know got a guy working for me and another person working. And you know, I worked, and I moved into more of the sales and marketing function, and then I think I've always been impressed about how intricately you are involved in some of the details, though. As some of our listeners might not know that you read every single consumer email that comes through and you still review every edition of the vital times before it goes out. Why are those the things that you're holding on to tightly and still very involved in? Vital time. Well, I, I, vital times I've always had a love for because that was a, my little baby at the very beginning. And I came out of public. I was a publisher years ago. I had a, uh, two magazines. That I published in the in the '90s, and so I c- came out of that, and um, so I kind of have a, a little joy of the the publishing and editing process. And years ago, I pointed out that we are not a, a a food company, but we're really an education company. You know, that's what we're really about. And to create a, a, a classification that's nationally recognized now in the pasture raising of eggs, it took a lot of educating of of people, uh, of our customers, to show that there was a difference. And, and that continues today with the efforts of marketing all the way through in our company. You know, when the cage-free movement got really strong a few years ago, people thought that cage-free was what we did. And, you know, that was a big education process to prove that it wasn't with, our, with the ad campaigns were written. So, um, How frustrating was that for cage-free to come along after, really become big after what you started doing? Well, to be clear, I mean, the, the people that really made the cage-free term come to light were Whole Foods. In 2005, they declared that they would only sell cage-free eggs. And the term cage-free, people in 2005, people hadn't heard of it. What it, what it really did is beg the question, you know, yep. cages? What cages? Mm-hmm. Chickens are in cages? Yeah, 93% of all hens were in cages at that point. 300 million hens living in, 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 in a tortured environment. I can't imagine a worse environment. And that's what it was like. And so cage-free came along, and what it meant was they opened the cages and put them on the floors of these warehouses. Which is pretty black and white, right? There's cages. These are cage-free. It doesn't, right. you know, it's not necessarily. It wasn't much different. They still weren't seeing, the cage-free hens don't see the light of day for the most part. They don't see any daylight. They don't, uh, they don't get to go outside. And so it's, it's, it's modestly better maybe than cages, but there's some of the more modern cage setups which offer a little more room in the cages. Um, some of them are called aviaries where they have a little more room. And I, I would argue, and they have uh, conveyors that take the, the manure away. So I would argue that, that that may be better for a hen than some of these cage-free operations that are out there. Let me put it this way. Grocery buyers and restaurant tours are not invited to visit cage-free operations. I've never heard of them being invited to mm. go see them. 
And we have them out on our farms frequently. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> They're welcome to come visit, but you won't see that. And that's one of the keys. There was a buyer that came, uh, I don't know, uh, two years ago, uh, and she, it was from a major organization, a public company that we're, um, that we're going to be using our, our, looking to buy and start using our eggs, which they did. Uh, but they came and visited, and they required the other potential vendors to, to take them to their farms. And it was a woman in this, uh, a young woman in this group uh, that came out, that she was the, in charge. And they, she walked into the pasture of one of our farms, sat down in the middle of the pasture with the chickens all around her and burst out crying. I do that every time I go to the farm as well. <laughs> it's I, a cathartic I, that's why I separate experience. from the group. Yeah. And go cry. <laughs> yeah. Have a good cry. <laughs> so Becca really touched on it too. Like that's gotta be a bit frustrating to see cage free take on this ethos that it really isn't. When you were there doing it the right way from the beginning, what are some of the big challenges along the way that maybe made you question if we could get to the place where we're at today? You know, I don't know that we had any huge challenges. And really quickly to go back to the cage thing, I wasn't frustrated when, when the movement took place. I think that Humane Society of the United States uh, under Wayne Pacelli, he was the one who really pushed that, uh, and that organization pushed it through and got California Prop 2 passed, which forbade, for the most part, use of cages. And that spread to Oregon and a few other states. And that really got the word going. And then pretty soon you had every single grocery store chain in the United States, 100% of the big chains and 100% of the major restaurants declaring that by 2025, they would be 100% cage-free, which again, it's arguably a little better than the cages, but it was a movement. And what really happened with this is people became aware. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't frustrating. Now, when, when my marketing, I went to my marketing team with, with a kind of a smile on my face, said, you have the easiest job in the world. And I said, what do you mean you have the easiest job in the world? I said, you, all you have to do is tell the truth. All you have to do is shed some light on this. Because everybody's talking cage-free now. And all we have to do now is call bullshit on it. Yep, let them know. Yeah, it's really interesting. And that's why, why Becca's here, why I'm here, why our boss, boss whose house we're at, Catherine, is here. You get to come and you get to tell the truth. And there's, that's not always the case. We talk about margarine. At one point, I was working on selling and marketing margarine. I'm like, I wouldn't eat this. I wouldn't have my parents eat this. So it's like you get to do, be part of the business. And um, you imagine having to sell um, soda for a living. I won't say many brands right now. Right? You got you to convert, convince somebody that sugar and water with flavoring in it and caramel coloring is going to change your life for the better. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where they spend billions of dollars on advertising. Can you imagine <laughs> having to sell that sugar water? And, no, uh, no, of yeah, course not. It's, it's, it's a really a great thing to be able to sit there and just, you know, shed light on, on fact. Definitely. On truth. So you, we asked, uh, you've been doing this now for 12 years, 13 years. And to say, hey, is there any big challenges? You say, no, not really any big challenges. Beck and I often think about part of what makes this podcast interesting. I think I'm a, almost annoyingly optimistic. Glass is half full. Becca will look at you and say, that's not even half empty. That's below half empty. <laughs> where, My where glass you... is dead dry at all times. The biggest pessimist you'll meet. So was no, the big... biggest pessimist are the ones that say that glass is, is uh, 2% empty. What is a glass? It's 98% full. What, is, what even is a glass? <laughs> yeah. How dare you, Becca? So would you consider yourself an optimistic glass is half full person? And is that a big part of your success in these businesses and vital farms over the years? Uh, the short answer is yes. And I'm being an optimist, which I am uh, absolutely is. But I am. But I think that my optimism is based on reality. I mean, I think that I look at something and, and I, don't, I don't think I'm overly crazy optimistic, but I will look at it and, and see... The, the opportunity there and see a clear path to get someplace. I don't just walk out and say, yay, we're going to, this is, this is going to happen. <laughs> I, I can see 
where it can lead. Now, a lot of things can come and make it, you know, I've had a lot of failures in business, you know, and uh, as an entrepreneur, you know, you learn to be, to temper your enthusiasm somewhat, but yeah, I mean, I'm an optimist. You talk about the stakeholder motto, and I think that's one of my favorite parts about working at Vital Farms. I could see a lot of big companies saying, yeah, we, we, think of everyone when we make decisions. So how did you really implement the stakeholder model at Vital Farms and make it a core piece of how we do things? Well, it started with a conscious capitalism, mm-hmm. which is a, um, originally was a thesis uh, or a essay written by John Mackey at Whole Foods that, that showed up as a, a blog on the Whole Foods website in the mid-2000s and um, became a best-selling book later on and, and now a whole movement. Yeah, I mean, so I had a, I had a a playbook and just followed it. Um, and I had an organization that I admired in Whole Foods uh, that um, was was living it as well. And so um, I have to say that, you know, that it, when it comes to conscious capitalism and the stakeholder model, there was not any creativity on my part. It was hmm. simply following a, 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 a proven format that if, if you take care of your stake, first of all, build your company and, and define it for a, a deeper purpose than just your profit, but really define deeper purpose. In our case, bringing ethically produced food to the table um, and, and, and working with small family farms. And then you define who your stakeholders are. You know? and I simply followed the Whole Foods model, which has the five stakeholders, which is customers, employees, shareholders, vendors, and then the last one, the environment and the, and the communities in which you operate. And then you treat them roughly equally. You don't overly favor the shareholder. You don't overly favor the customer. You don't overly favor the employees. We're all sitting around this table when we make major decisions. And and then you make sure that it's built into the culture of the company. And you don't just, it's not just a bunch of bullshit, but it's the real thing. You really believe it and you really live it. And you make sure it's involved in the conversations. And now I walk around the company, I hear you guys talking about it all the time. It's <laughs> in your conversations. And guess what? It inoculates the company from uh, an egotistical, maniacal boss because... I could not get away with any shit in this company. You guys would stop me in a second. I would not. I could not get away with making a decision that is financially beneficial to the company that would be uh, hurt one of our stakeholders. I think that's so true. I we really feel empowered to speak up all the time. I'm always probably favoring our farmers and our growers a little bit more <laughs> than I should, but I, li- I like to think of myself as their voice in Austin. Um, I know one that Beck and I talked about selfishly, and we can end on this one, was you've talked about you know taking a lot of risks and having a lot of failures in your career that have led you here. What would you tell us to, or someone like us to who listens to the podcast, as career advice for someone early in their career, you know, ad- advice to live by or some advice that you would give? Well, I don't have any new, I don't think there's any really new ideas. Most ideas aren't new. They're just amalgamations of other ideas, right? You know, the most, the best advice I've ever heard is, you know, find out what you really, really, really love and, and do that. I'm nearing that age. AARP keeps sending me uh, stuff in my mailbox, you know, I was like, really? I don't, you know, I got, I was fortunate enough to have a couple of meals with Warren Buffett over the years. And, and here's a guy who's 90 this year, I think. He's never worked a day in his life. He loves what he does. He gets up in the morning and just, just can't wait to get to his desk and do what he does. You know, that's the kind of, you know, what I, that's what I admire. I was a really, really, really good dishwasher for two summers. <laughs> Whatever you do, be the best in the world. A dishwasher, a DJ, a pilot, a farmer. There's got to be 30 more, right? 
Just yep. We'll get to that next episode. All right. Thanks so much for doing this, Matt. This has been fun. We appreciate it. Yeah. I like your digs, though. Really nice garage. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening to episode four. I do have a call to action for our listeners, though. I'm on the search for a jingle for this podcast. I want to get a real deal jingle with some chickens Ooh. clucking, but like maybe a banjo. My boss denied my request. She says it's not worth the time or money. So if anyone banjo out there... T- banjo ditties are expensive in her banjo. defense. I mean, guitar could work. I would prefer a banjo. No, I mean, but... we're going to get free banjo from these guys, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you are feeling up to making us a jingle, send it our way. There could be a large supply of pasture-raised eggs in your future. And podcast fame. Matt's going to pull in someone like uh, the Avit Brothers or something to record it. This has not been approved by my boss. (laughs) I'm going to ask for forgiveness instead of permission, but I'll get you some eggs if you get us a good jingle. Free eggs for music. If you get a good jingle, man, and it gets stuck in someone's head, your podcast is like skyrocket. I don't, I don't mean your podcast. I mean whoever's doing a podcast, <laughs> their hypothetical podcast. Okay, guys, you got the challenge. Challenge. the jingle. Thrown down. This is Matt O'Hare. Thanks for listening to Shoot the Bullshit. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Bullshit with Vital Farms. To find out more, go to vitalfarms.com or head to your grocery store and pick up some pasteurized eggs and butter.